Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. All right, I'm here with James Hunting. James, how are you doing? Pretty well, Rob. Thanks for having me. Good, yeah. So James is uh, the VP of the Reliability Services Group at Fluid Life. Uh, before that, James worked at the Alberta Professional Engineering Group, APEG A. I forget what it stands for. APEG Association of <laughs> Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of Alberta. That's why he works there and I just pay the bills every year. <laughs> um, and then before that, James, you worked at Shell Refinery as a reliability professional. That's right, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you did at Shell? Sure. Well, I, I actually started my career at the Petro-Canada Edmonton Refinery. Yeah. <clears throat> and we started there in projects and eventually moved into the units. And uh, I had the title of reliability engineer there. But in truth, I was mostly just a maintenance engineer, really, <laughs> right? Um, like so many maintenance practitioners or reliability practitioners, uh, you're given the title and the responsibility to try to make reliability improvements, but you spend a lot of your days just trying to fix and chase the things that are breaking, right? Yeah. And, I, and that was, it was difficult, although I did have some good exposure there, and um, I think that they have a much better process now, of course. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I joined Shell that I got a, a really good introduction to reliability. In their, uh, part, part of their Global Asset Maintenance Excellence Group, uh, which is GAME for short, um, they had a lot of initiatives that were really, truly reliability-based. I was um, very fortunate to be given uh, the role of RCM focal, reliability-centered maintenance focal there, and charged with completing the initial studies for, uh, their entire, for the entire upgrader. And that was just a tremendous learning um, time for me. I, was, uh, I got the chance to work with a facilitator out of Calgary by the name of Frat Amera, and he is actually cited in the introduction to John Mulberry's RCM2 book. He's acknowledged as a colleague in there, and, um, and I learned just about everything I know about RCM from Frat. Uh, it was tremendous. And over the five years, we just went unit by unit and, um, and did our RCM studies. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. But then APEGA had an opening and an opportunity that was here in the city, and I did go and join them for a little while. Um, I, got, I was there as the uh, Director of Compliance, and so we just, we preserved the uh, reserve title and the reserve practice, uh, 
sections of the EGP Act for engineers. Make sure that only engineers were practicing engineering and were using the title of engineer, right? Or geoscientist, right? For that matter. Yeah, no, we had uh, last week on the podcast, we had Nancy Regan on and she learned her RCM from John Mowbray too. Oh, wow. So it was pretty interesting to hear her thoughts on how RCM works. And so I guess while we're on that topic, kind of give us like one of your best tips on doing an RCM, like what's important and what could someone, you know, who's looking to do an RCM, what would you tell them as a, you know, as a pro tip? Wow. In, in a one sound bite, that would be tough. For me, it's all about the team, right, um, that, you, that you gather. I think your analysis will be as good as your team. Yeah. So that's my one minute or 10 second sound bite, but I could go a lot deeper uh, if you wanted. No, that's uh, great. I mean, we do like absolutely the team and like I don't want to focus on RCM this week, but the team is absolutely one thing. One thing Nancy mentioned was that to ensure you had the right people on the team was ask for the guy that the manager can't afford to lose for the week, which I don't know if you ever get that guy, but you hope to. That, that, that's excellent advice. Yeah, and and if you can get the guys to leave the radios out of the room, you know, just so that, and the ladies, of course, too, so that they can focus on the task at hand. Um, the only other advice, and I don't know if Nancy just described this, I imagine that she's experienced it though, is RCM is often seen as the resource-consuming monster, and not to focus on it too much, but it doesn't have to be right. You can do RCM on a single asset or a group, a small group of critical assets. Uh, I think you can also make it much more appealing to people by doing as much pre-work as you can outside of the group facilitation exercise, uh, minimize the amount of time that you have people taken away from their jobs in, in the room, and then spend a lot of time afterwards actually entering all the data on behalf of the people. Yeah. That's how we did it at Shell, um, and it made it much more palatable uh, to management to give up the resources that are required for it. So, mm-hmm. Did Nancy mention that at all? or? Well, she mentioned that you definitely want to do, I mean, obviously do as much work as possible. Um, But yeah, that's a great point is break it up into bite-sized chunks and then really work as you go. Yeah. Um, What I wanted to have you on today to talk about was more about the reliability journey and how to take people who are in kind of a reactive plant or a reactive site and how to really move them into proactive maintenance like the, or proactive reliability asset management kind of uh, culture. And so I guess when you were working at Shell, um, how did you really implement the RCM outputs? Rob, that's, this is, it's, you know, we're getting to the culture piece, which is one of the most difficult pieces. Yep. I think the reason we were successful at Shell um, was because they had a dedicated group that they shielded from the daily maintenance activities that could focus on the reliability initiatives, right? And that takes a lot of investment and already a buy-in from, from management into the importance of reliability and getting away from the reactive way of doing things. Yeah. Um, by shielding a group of people to be able to focus on it from the day-to-day work of the uh, keeping the plant running, uh, it allowed us to to execute on the RCM and the other initiatives with, that we had, quite a few actually. Um, 
The other, uh, the other thing that I did was to really leverage the knowledge of the trades folks yeah. and their frustration a little bit in that I would be sitting in the room with uh, some of the millwrights, for instance, as uh, uh, we had a group of specialists that kind of oversaw each of the trades. Um, and so they would have tradesmen come in the room and they'd be handed a PM to go check a pump, right? And you would, I would hear on occasion um, audible frustration from the millwrights saying, well, man, we're gonna go check this pump again and there's never any issue with it, right? And um, so they'd leave the room. So I challenged the, the millwright specialist, I was, why are they going to check this pump at this frequency? Because it sounds like they never find anything, right? And, you know, um, the answer was that, well, these were the intervals that were dictated on startup of the facility. And, and so they'd never really been challenged or updated from the initial assumptions, right? Yeah. And so um, I, I, I said, well, it's very, very important information to hear that the as-found condition was fine, right? Because that means you're likely looking at it too often. Mm-hmm. So when the, the millwrights returned from doing that activity, I asked, so what did you find? Nothing. Um, about how often when you're doing this PM would you find an issue? And then, well, uh, about every six months, every six-month check is, is when something starts to show up or a pillar starts to show some wear or the bearings are, are starting to go. Um, and so right there, that's a very easy clue, right, to about the approximate timing that that interval should have been done, that PM test should have been done. Yeah. And so by leveraging their own frustration and saying, you know, would you mind if we sat down and talked about this pump and what your findings are and what the history is and maybe we could come up with a better plan, you're, they were excited to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they were excited to get away from the preventative task that was too frequent. And I, and I had similar stories when they were having to react to, to a common failure that they were ca- they were not catching in time yeah. because the interval, interval was incorrect in that as well. So. That was one of the ways that I tried to drive uh, from the ground, from the front line, uh, the frustration in the activities that activities that they do that they see are not optimized. Yeah. And um, you know, I say I've got there's a technique that we're going to be doing here that might help you with this. I need your input and your advice, which is absolutely true, right? They're mm-hmm. the experts. I don't know about every single different kind of pump and seal that's out there. Um, and show that their input is valued and listened to and is actually going to be acted on. That was, those were some of the keys that I found to, to drive that culture change piece, which is so difficult. Yeah, I, I well, so I, when I was on site last week, uh, I was teaching a course and we had a couple of EITs from the reliability group in the room and then we had lube specialists in the room as well. And it was actually like, obviously the lube specialists were not shy to share their opinions on some of the topics we were talking about. Uh, one of the most kind of uh, big topics that we had a pr- really good discussion on was the the scheduling of the lube routes. So they're using these handhelds and the handhelds are fine. It was just some of the input fields were annoying to, to put in. And I think the handhelds are a bit old. Mm-hmm. And so 
we got a lot of I I thought we got a lot of progress in just having that brought up to people who actually can affect what goes in because the the EITs are in charge of managing the routes themselves and then the obviously the loop specialists are in charge of executing the work and so there was a lot of progress there just for me because I was just like tell me what's wrong with yours and then okay you got to listen to this right and it's like I don't think you would you would have been able to do that as not a third party because when because they obviously talk to each other outside of that class and it's like I don't know why they hadn't talked about it there's something to what you're saying it's facilitating that communication that that I don't know what the barriers are are necessarily internally there could be a whole bunch of different reasons but like you said that third party that's listening and, and hearing and then communicating it up or down right yeah um, uh, we would go a long way to fix that situation. That frustration that they have, imagine the barrier that that is. Yeah. They will likely find a workaround in time, or they'll certainly, the motivation to continue that kind of program with poor tools would die, yeah. I think, pretty quickly. And uh, that sounds really good. To me, the key that I always found in my head was and that I've found since uh, is that you got to sell it up and you got to sell it down, right? Yeah. And there are different ways of doing each, and there's a lot of literature on this out in the reliability world. Um, managing up a shell was easy. I didn't have that barrier because it was already recognized, yeah. but that's that's difficult. But to me, by just listening, right? Listening to the frontline practitioners. Um, hearing their frustrations and making them a part of the solution by using a method like, well, RCM or any other uh, reliability methodology uh, gets you, I think, that buy-in that you need it for it to go forward, right? Yeah, like I think when I was at Tech, they were we were implementing um, like a telemetry type system. And the one site that had a lot of success uh, what the guy, what the engineer did was he went into the shop and just started being part of the PM with the laptop and then the truck would come in and he would tell you know the mechanic he'd be like well I, I think that this is wrong and I think that this is wrong and they would go inspect for whatever the, the thing was and then they were finding that he was right because the sensors are telling you that it's it's off or whatever and then eventually what was happening was the mechanics were calling him in his office and saying, we have this truck coming in, you know, pull up the data and tell me what I need to know. And so it was really, it was really interesting. I mean, it was a great way to, as an engineer, that you can just affect on the shop floor kind of almost immediately. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's, that's a great example. Of course, the approach it has to be right if you were yeah. saying that's wrong or that's wrong uh, you'd have to do it in the right manner um, as to not insult you know the mechanics and their and their knowledge of it but yeah but I'm sure that's what they did because uh, the minute that they start coming that the people on the front line come to you with the issues that you've pointed out to them or something in the, before that that's the time when you know you've that you're, you're one. <laughs> you're, you're being effective, yeah. and they're going to be champions as well. You know, not necessarily 
rah rah outwardly, but but that the, they've bought into it, and that that's huge. That's huge. Let's face it, we do rely on the people, uh, the practitioners. For me, uh, in maintenance, uh, they know far better than us sitting in the office, generally the condition and what's going on out there, right? And yeah. uh, and um, I learned almost everything I know from that group of specialists I worked with at Shell uh, with re- relating to, they made me look good. They were allowed me to be successful, right, as a reliability guy because um, I, I depended on their knowledge and their experience. So, Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's you, you can't, like, I, I used to be kind of a reliability engineer that was in the office. Like, at Tech, I didn't really go to sites very often. And, you know, since I started here at Fluid Life, I've been out on the road a ton, and I go to a bunch of sites. And one of my favorite things to do is just, like, eat lunch with the mechanics because you can hear everything that's going wrong. Yeah. But also, it just reinforces the, like, my boss at Tech, Jeff Smith, he used to say, you know, you can't affect reliability until you affect somebody who physically interacts with the, the equipment, whether that's maintain it, lubricate it, operate it, you know, I guess purchase it probably is included in that as well. Sure. Um, Plan for it, potentially. Yeah, and so because at the end of the day, like, they're the people who are, you know, like, it doesn't matter if they're, you know, a purchaser and wherever and they're buying a cheap piece of equipment versus a more expensive one, um, but they're actually physically kind of changing the way it's going to operate and so uh, it's one thing that I, I really like and I really kind of my mindset on it has really changed in the last few years is like the reliability, like a lot of it boils down to precision maintenance. And like if you're installing the equipment correctly, you're purchasing the equipment that's good, of good quality, you're ensuring that it arrives at your site in, in a like working condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're not breaking it when you put it into your spare part, like your spares room, and you don't, you know, you don't do bad practices in that respect. Um, I think a lot of that stuff, like I call it, kind of reliability fundamentals, but a lot of that ground level work is so important to give you results at the end. Little things, yeah, seemingly, but so important in the long run. I can't tell you how many pumps that we got arrive on site. I've been shipped over land on a truck and we've got false prenelling the bearings just yep. from the vibration of the vehicle itself, right? So that inspection upon um, you know, commissioning or, or upon receipt, even before that it's commissioned hopefully, right? Yeah, we had the same problem at Tech was we were getting um, alternators and when they left the factory, they were that we would get a report that they were doing motor current analysis and vibration and they were great when they left the factory and then when they got put in service immediately within the first couple hundred hours they were failing and it was found that the transportation was actually the cause for it yeah and so we started doing acceptance testing and then it went away like well the the delivery people had to fix a few issues. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, but you bring up a good point. So there's there's that, that aspect to it. If it's being stored for any period of time, uh, we used uh, RCM at Shell also to do RCM on spares in the warehouse. Yeah. 
what is the frequency of turning in the shaft quarter turn, right? Or any kind of relubrication tasks or uh, inspections that need to be done as it's sitting there, right? Not being used and idling, corrosion concerns and uh, a lot of valves that sit forever in a human environment and will corrode. So, so there's that, there's that one piece. Um, the precision maintenance in terms of the installation is another important piece. Pressing your bearings onto the shaft after you've dropped it on the floor. No, I'm just <laughs> uh, the alignment and everything. And I think what you're describing here between the, the delivery, the acceptance, and the installation, I think that's why you see such a high infant mortality rate uh, type failure mechanism on equipment out there. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a lot of studies done that show the six different failure modes, yeah. and infant mortality being a significant one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know this is a fairly basic reliability principle, but it's I find that story fascinating because the old idea of doing a preventative maintenance uh, on equipment reintroduces that most common failure mode of infant mortality every time, and you're making things worse, <laughs> which led to all the new third and even fourth proactive genera- uh, generation maintenance thinking. So. Yeah. Everything you described is so key, absolutely. Um, so when we talk about taking people on the reliability journey, how important is it to get executive sponsorship? Well, it is very important for the reasons I think I described in that you need the time. You need people to be able to dedicate time. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be a flavor of the month, and it will die, and it's going to be twice as hard to, to re-engage, right? Yeah. So um, I think more and more people are becoming exposed to the principles we're, t- we're talking about. It, this used to be, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm older, but you know, this, I'd say it used to be harder. Maybe that's not true. But <laughs> these days in school, I think more and more um, students are being exposed both in the technical schools and the university in, in engineering to the principles of reliability and how important they are. So that sales job for people who get up into the management roles later in their career should already be somewhat done. People know it's important, it's just hard to get to it, right? Um, But um, uh, we see facilities now with dedicated reliability groups. I still hear the stories that they've got the title and they're still just doing reactive work, but but more and more I think time is being dedicated to uh, reliability efforts, true reliability efforts. Yeah, I, I think it depends on what facility. Like you see both um, when I go around, like when I go to different sites, like you'll see reliability engineers who are, you know, maintenance engineers and you'll see reliability engineers who are actually doing reliability engineering. Yeah. So I, I just think it depends on the facility or who's ma- like who is the exec. Because like, like it, they may know about reliability, but some people don't necessarily know what that means, like what that means the reliability engineer should do. Yeah, no question. Um, you're right. My, when I think in my background, I think about big industrial facilities, and, and of course here at Food Life, we have a, a whole variety of customers, including Mobile World, and mining's a very different world, which I really enjoy getting to know. Um, but all the facilities in between, um, what I've noticed from some of the uh, mills that I've visited is you sometimes will have one strong internal champion who's in the maintenance group, 
who understands all these principles and, and knows, but they're struggling to do that that sell up even within their own organization. Yeah. And so by bringing uh, uh, others in that third-party voice, like you mentioned, to help com- communicate the importance of it, describe that it doesn't have to be uh, super resource intensive. You can just focus on critical assets and improve your plan. Um, it, I am still surprised, Rob, how to this day people uh, don't. Well, they 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 struggle to recognize the value you get from from doing good reliability work, optimizing maintenance activities. How in the long run, to me, it's so obvious. And I know every other reliability practitioner out there suffers from this, but at this point in my career, it just seems so blatantly clear that it's key. And and yet the fact that we have to do the sales job um, uh, shows that it's it's still maybe not as pervasive as we would have liked it to have been. That NASA um, bow wave they talk about, you know, the two-year implementation before you start to see results is the key. In reliability, we're selling the absence of failure, which to me is is difficult. Right? You don't see results immediately. That immediate gratification isn't there. Uh, always. Sometimes it is, but not always. What do you think? Yeah, like I would argue, so as reliability engineer, when you said that, you said we're selling the absence of failure, right? And something that that's what managers think is like hey we're going to hire 10 reliability guys we're going to put them to work and then we're going to not have any failures even though our client's seven years old but we won't worry about that you know we're still going to we're going to have them they're going to do rcm they're going to do our root cause we're not going to have any failures anymore everything's going to be great i think that's the lack of understanding of like when we do RCM, it's not that we're trying to avoid failures. We're trying to minimize the overall cost of doing the maintenance and also the cost of the failure, right? So like Nancy called it, you know, minimizing risk. I, I as a semi-economist, call it just minimizing overall cost because, you know, safety and environment, all that stuff is a cost at some level. Yeah, you can't equate all those, all risks to cost, absolutely. Correct. And so RCM is about minimizing cost overall. And so that doesn't mean that we don't have a failure. Like even if we have a RCM designed maintenance program, there are some assets we're going to choose run to failure because the cost of failure is low. Yeah. And so I think like the managers, they like it when you would speak in that terms like we're trying to minimize cost of maintenance mm-hmm. you would have to I think you also need to illustrate that that cost does include the other stuff like companies now are using the word like triple bottom line right um, when I worked as a financial consultant we called it uh, we we called essentially social benefits uh, we called it sustainable return on investment right and so it was like included like stuff with the environment um, when they were building, you know, bridges, it was like people t- people's time sitting in cars was included in that. Right. So right. there's there's a broader range of stuff. 
but that, that's kind of we're going to nerd out on economics. <laughs> um, so one thing I wanted to ask you. So as we go on our reliability journey, what KPI should we measure, and like where should we change them from the beginning to the end? How do they kind of evolve over time? Right. What does that look like to you? Yeah, KPIs are really really key uh, in my mind. The, the thing that I got one of the most, the greatest accolades for while I was working in my career at Shell was as, as a dashboard that we produced out of the reliability group. We had a senior VP walk through the facility one day, and I got kudos from the general manager of the facility because the VP uh, noticed our dashboard and, and pulled me aside and said, you know, by, by seeing that you've got these six key measures and you're tracking them, I know you've got a handle on what's going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I took that as a, as a compliment. Um, what was key there were the, that they were key performance indicators yeah. and uh, not a list of 50 that are reviewed monthly, which happened at other facilities I'd been at previously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think they do evolve. Um, so I don't want to get too off topic, but I just wanted to bring come back to what you talked about with RCM and it lead into this, but yeah. uh, the, the fact that RCM is iterative, and you're making your best guesses, and you will have some improvements immediately. But the fact that a living program is is really key for reliability, that tests your assumptions and improves the overall program over time, mm-hmm. um, will make it shift. And so your KPIs, I, agree, I think, will shift as as you iterate towards the most optimal reliability scenario. Yeah. Um, we had a set cycle to do from the initial studies to the revisiting of our initial study assumptions um, every five years in the case of the facility I was doing it at. And um, every failure was gold. I mean, it was a chance to learn because every failure meant that we had made a wrong assumption in our initial study. And so it allows us to plug it back in and iterate to an improved optimized maintenance plan, yeah. the asset. So initially, of course, oh man, I'm going to get in trouble here, but you know, MTBF was one that we had, <laughs> uh, but it's not the best indicator over time, as, as we've all come to understand as practitioners, right? Um, managing things on a bad actor basis um, is a way to focus on criticality initially. Uh, so our dashboard included uh, bad actors which uh, was really just a way to focus our effort on the things that were eating our lunch, right? Yeah. Um, it included some condition monitoring um, results. I'm gonna, it sounds like a plug, but it's not. We did have oil <laughs> analysis, but also vibration analysis results. We had a very good team of infrared uh, practitioners that would go out and shoot all our boiler tubes and, and uh, see methane uh, reformer tubes to keep an eye on the creep and things like that, which would give us some kind of indication of when we could expect a failure. We had um, a focus on electric motors uh, as well, and that was those were our set of initial KPIs uh, to give us an idea from a reliability perspective where we were, where we were going. We also, another key indicator was how many of our studies were, had been completed, right? How many. PMs have been considered and optimized, and how our spare parts were being optimized. So, of course, over time that evolved. As the as the studies were complete, um, we were looking at um, 
we were very, very interested in, in the incidents, failure incidents, um, because we'd done the studies and they would challenge our, the assumptions that we made. Uh, we looked at, uh, we were looking much more closely over time at the basics like availability, um, because the goal was to hit that bottom line and improve that metric, right? Yeah. Uh, which interestingly, it wasn't originally, right? Um, originally, it was very much uh, how reactive are we with the bad actors and how you know the things we're eating our lunch. In time, it, it came to how can we measure how well we're doing, how effective we are, are the decrease in the failure rates uh, through availability and things like that. Yeah. How, uh, what's your experience with KPIs? Yeah, I mean at Tech we were measuring, uh, well, specifically we so we were having some engine issues. Um, and specifically, we started measuring stuff like, um, well, we were measuring like how many fi like infant failures we were having, and then we were also measuring like the average life lifespan of an engine. And so, I think that was it was pretty. I mean, obviously, it's basic. Like it's essentially an MTBF. Mm -hmm. um, but as it as you work on it you can start seeing like people like to see that you can grow it right and that's one thing that people like but i mean also if we're going to talk about mtbf for a minute um i was looking once at the shovel reports um for you know their failures and there was a couple electric like the electric shovels and they were having electrical faults like all the time and the MTBF was literally like two hours <laughs> which is I mean it's not per failure mode it's for the actual the whole piece of equipment and so it was something like bananas like that and you just you got it's not like a useful metric like it's not helpful for you to know that and so because like then what do you do like what am I supposed to do with this information I, I hear you but I think people gravitate to it because it's fairly easy to measure yeah you, can, you know, it's something you can affect. And when you get to two, four hours, you're twice as good, you know, it, it seems. Yeah. To me, what's more interesting, I think, would be MTTR somewhat. Because if you're doing good reliability, you've anticipated the failure. So do you have the spare parts ready? Do you have the crafts all lined up? It has been planned, right? Uh, how quickly can you bring that machine down, repair it, and get it back up? I think that MTTR should reduce over time as you move from reactive to a uh, predictive or proactive type of maintenance philosophy. Yeah, one thing I want to just mention on that is I like to make the distinction between mean downtime and mean time to repair. So mean t downtime is like the time from the thing stops running until it starts running again. Mm -hmm. And then mean time to repair is the time that we've actually started repairing it until we're finished repairing it. So you mean wrench time? Sort of. Oh, okay, so... And, and so, just, just it's, it's probably the difference is mobile versus plant. Okay. Because, like, in, at, at, you know, in mining, it's not uncommon that something will fail, it'll be in the pit, and it'll sit for a while uh, until we can pull it out into right. the maintenance shop. And sometimes you're waiting on the, the tow truck. Sometimes the tow truck's broken and you have to pull it out with another haul truck. You know, stuff like that. A few times, actually, there was, there was like three weeks of waiting for it to come out. Wow. And so that kind of stuff is, 
that's why, like, from the mobile side, I'm saying, like, you got to make a distinction because, like, the kidding that you're going to do, understanding the failure, like, all that stuff, that's part of mean time to repair. Right. But the mean downtime, there's sometimes there's a lot of logistics that you need to get aligned. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, that, that, that would, I think, I appreciate that. Yeah. That's something that actually I didn't appreciate previously. Um, I could see how you could equate that into a plant environment with an unexpected failure, right? Yeah. One that you haven't anticipated because it'll come down and you're going to bring the plant down, which is not great. And people will scramble, but there is a period in which it may... Well, you're trying to source the parts, you're trying to source the guy, you're trying to right. source... That's right. So there is time there that you're not actually repairing, quote-unquote. Right, that gets into the MTTR. Because I, I think of MTTR myself as the operators are bringing the piece of equipment down, yeah, or, and then right to when the operators are, are recommissioning. So, But there is, sometimes I could see a front-end piece to that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, like, in terms of MTTR... There is a lot of work that reliability people can do. It's more on the, you know, the Six Sigma side. But in terms of like kidding for PMs, uh, you know, doing the spaghetti diagrams, so then you know, like, the 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 mechanic who's doing the work is not going to the tool crib eight times. He's like optimized in how he's doing it, um, like optimizing the instructions, so then. He understands what he's doing and it's in a, an order that makes sense mm -hmm. and like there's a lot of work that we can do on that end but a lot of the times you know like from the mobile side it's the mean downtime that's killing you it's not the mean time to repair right like we were having like when we were having the engine issues it was taking us roughly it was like two and a half to three days to change an engine and so they're big engines they're the size of your car you pull out the frame, it's got the alternator and the radiator attached, and then you put in a new frame with the new three-piece attachment, and then it's more like you're connecting hoses and electric lines and stuff. Um, versus if you change the just the engine piece, it takes long, it takes like five days because you have to pull off the alternator, you have to pull off the radiator, and then you have to connect everything. But anyways, um, we were down to like two and a half days. Uh, because they were doing a ton of them. Wow. And the the big thing was that wasn't really what was eating our lunch. What was eating our lunch was the the times where it was three weeks in the pit because, you know, the tow truck w was down or whatever. And so that, like, that downtime, I mean, you think about it, three weeks is two and a half days times ten. Yeah. Right? So it's a big difference. That's huge. So I have so many questions for you, Rob. Yeah, go ahead. So you were doing this often enough that you had full assembly spare engine and alternator. Yeah, we were having some problems. I think we did one year, we, we did 40 or 50 engines wow. in a year out of a fleet of around 110. Okay. Yeah. It was, we were having some big issues, like I won't talk about who it was or whatever, but yeah, yeah. Um, we were having some big issues with it. Okay. So, so you could, you had to imagine have a lot of those spare assemblies ready to go. Yeah, the one thing time. that we were kind of lucky with was they figured out what the root cause was, and they figured out we could we could sort of estimate 
which ones were going to be. And so we were able to kind of start doing them proactively. And then it was a matter of, you know, also using like condition, like telemetrics to see which ones are failing and then kind of move fast on them. We, I don't think we ever held that many spares. It was more like they would have maybe two or three kicking around, and then they were working on just cycling it through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just I'm really interested in the difference between the mobile and the plant worlds because I've I've really enjoyed learning that here at Food Life. Yeah. And uh, the exposure to that's pretty been really neat, but uh, the logistics would be quite different. Um, in a, for a big major plant failure, for instance, yeah. uh, of a pumper and assembly, because you have a lot of different crafts involved to repair this thing. I mean, you could take it all the way from the operators to uh, bring it down and start it up, electrical lockout, takeout, any kind of scaffolding and hoarding and heating if required, um, all the different trades, welding, mill rates if, if necessary, and getting things in and out with crane. I mean, there's a lot in that respect to have to to put together and to coordinate, right? Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you lose an engine in the pit, you have a tow truck bring it into the shop, you've probably got an overhead crane to use. I imagine there aren't those multiple different trade logistics to work out. Yeah, I mean, it's typically, it's like mechanics and electricians and you're pretty much good to go. Like one of our planners right now, he used to work as a mechanic, and they're like they're they're able to drive the equipment. So if they want to test whether it's working, they just they all know how to do it, right? So you don't need an operator to do it, right? Um, and then like also, what's nice about if you have a fleet of like twenty trucks and they're all the same truck, like they're the same manufacturer make and model, then people get good at fixing stuff. And so it's different than if you have like a one-off pump in the plant or a one-off gearbox, which walking around like with what I do at Fluid Life, you'll see them and it's the only gearbox that's this type and they have a hundred different ones and you're like, the knowledge you need to to maintain this facility is is like ridiculous. Right, and that's why RCM can be really key to plant it because uh, of the spare parts, right, that you're yeah. trying to manage for all these different one-offs versus a fleet of 10 triple sevens or something. Yeah, there's one thing, like, I'll just mention because I was, I was, so I used to work on spare parts optimizations, and one thing that a lot of people don't consider is when they're purchasing equipment, they're looking, a lot of people look for, the like, the best deal. Um, and you'll see this even in, in mobile side is, you know, one year they'll pick Caterpillar, the next year they'll pick Komatsu, the year after they'll pick Bear because they're not really concerned about, their, they're just looking for the deal of the day kind of thing. And maybe they're all equally as good in terms of availability and performance. Like, let's just say that for now, just to illustrate the point. But when I was working on spare parts optimization, I did uh, like some work with the University of Toronto and we found, so, uh, we were looking at um, holding the spare parts in a central location and sourcing them to four different mines which are within an hour-ish drive. And if you had an optimal spare parts for each of the mines, so you'd have four spare rooms, mm-hmm. 
um, and they weren't allowed to share with each other, you're spending 15% more than one spare parts room that you could share between the four mines. So you're holding like, I think it was like uh, one you were holding 10 engines, the other one you were holding eight. And so like the your diversification of risk, right? Right. So the more like you're, you're just scaling it out. And, and so if you can share, like if you can continue to buy, like let's say you start off with Caterpillar, continue to buy Caterpillar because then your spare parts room won't just grow and grow and you'll spend a lot of money that you're not even realizing, even if it's perfect, in which case most of the times it's not. So it's just something to consider. It's really interesting. And so that that's that's the building, that's the physical rack space. That's Is that what the 15% extra is? No, so what it is really is it's the risk. Okay, I see. Right? So like in the one, so one site has to hold three, the other one has to hold three, three and two or whatever, whatever the numbers are. But if because the way spare parts optimization works, it, it thinks about if you fail too many and you run out, now you have to order from you know somewhere and it takes three weeks and you're getting downtime or you know and it also considers your rebuild capacity. And so the essentially the more coins you can flip, the more that you trend towards average. I see. And so it's just like this, you know, Monte Carlo simulation, like you get closer to your long-term expectation versus if you have one facility with one piece of equipment, either fails or it doesn't. And then most of the time, if that failure costs you money, you have to hold a spare, right? Right. So if you, but if you have 10 of those units, five of them should fail and five of them shouldn't. I see. And so you only really, you, maybe you can get by with holding two. Right. Right. That's 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 fascinating, and I know that you're really good with um, with this kind of simulation, like the Monte Carlo, and, and you're very good with the Weibull, and all the mathematically based stuff is one of your strengths, right? Economics and stuff too. So, uh, and spare parts, it's such such an opportunity for impact on the bottom line, which I find um, uh, to be quite frank, I think one of the main drivers uh, for us doing the RCM was not specifically for the optimized PMs, although it's a good side benefit. It was to optimize the parts sitting in the warehouse that had been put there for the startup of a new facility, but were not the correct spare parts uh, for a running facility. And so uh, the dead stock that was sitting there and the lack of turnover and things where it was costing the company a tremendous amount of money, right? And uh, RCM uh, was the tool is a tool that can be used to do that, or you could do, you know, just straight economic order quantity, you know, minimum stock levels, uh, just to address um, spare parts at a basic level, so. Yeah, there's a lot that people don't do correctly with it. We won't talk about all of it today. Right. But there's a big opportunity there. Yeah. So I'm probably taking you all over the place from where you were hoping to go. No, that was uh, good. yeah, so I guess last things, uh, James, do you have anything to plug? Are you going to be at any conferences? Uh, is there anything you want people to check out? Well, Rob, to be quite frank, you know, here I'm very excited to be part of Fluid Life because what was traditionally known as an analysis lab is really shifting focus to full service reliability. Um, 
and where lubrication is only a small component of what we're going to end up using as data to do reliability studies. Um, so, you know, we're capable here now of offering full RCM services, facilitation, um, and uh, coordination of it as well. Um, criticality analysis, spare parts optimization, um, preventative maintenance optimization exercises, root cause analysis as well. That's one of my other passions and uh, something I have quite a bit of experience in from the facilities that I worked at. Uh, I was, I don't know, I guess you don't want to say it's fortunate that you're able to participate in some major failure uh, exercises, but I did have exposure. And it's fun. <laughs> no, I mean stuff, I, I have had the opportunity to work with multinational teams, international teams, on some pretty significant failures. and. Uh, I hate to say, but it's a, it's a process that I really enjoy being a part of, and I, and I want to facilitate here through Fluid Life. So um, I'm excited that we're building a team here and that we can do all these things. You and I are going to be at the conference in December. Yep, at the International Maintenance Conference in Florida in December. Yeah, and uh, there are others I'd like to participate in, uh, but I don't think we're uh, signed up for yet. 